When getting through is all that counts From towns with names you can't pronounce They're busy dialing Macca on a Sunday morning Where's Macca this morning? He's Steve in is in Parks. Good morning, Steve. G'day, mate. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. Mate, it's beautiful out here, but it's dry. Dry. It's shocking. But anyway, that's, life goes on, doesn't it? Macca, can I talk about the uh, allo- the steel mill over at Whitehall for a second? You can. These politicians are always on about jobs, jobs, jobs. Mate, if they awarded that inland railway line out here between Brisbane and Melbourne, that had saved that mill for at least for another four or five years. Mate, it's great. That much jobs out there. Billions of sleepers, billions of tons of blue metal. All the little towns in the meanwhile, the motels, all them, everyone would benefit. It's just crazy. Do they listen to you? Maka, do they listen? Yeah, there's too many home tours here, probably. I'm a truck driver, mate. We save, we save that many problems at night time listening and talking to ourselves, but no one, no one. <laughs> we save the world, mate, overnight, you know. Just talking all night about problems, what's going on in the world. If you're ever talking to one of them politicians, mate, just get in your ear, will you? Love you. Good on you, Steve. On the canning. Up the creek, the port, the cove, the glen, the gap, the vale, the grove. They're tuning in to Macker on a Sunday morning. Yeah, Macker in the morning turns my week around. He picks me up when I feel down. Wait all week for Macker on a Sunday morning. The short waves beaming into Dilly. Southport's fine, Mount Barker's chilly. At Salisbury Plain, they're cleaning up the badges. For some, the radio dial is set, while others are surfing the internet. They're logging on to Macca on a Sunday morning. I wait all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. Just another manic Sunday. Good morning and welcome to the program. As you look around Australia, there's snow and blizzards, there's dust storms, there's fires... There's drought. There's the whole thing, and that's just another just another Sunday morning in Australia. Good morning. Our number thirteen hundred seven hundred triple two on the program this morning. A few little stories. Great storytelling is a great Australian tradition, isn't it? Usually written down and then read to people. We'll give you a couple of those this morning, and we'll talk to you on that number. Uh, some emails and some Facebooks. Um, Facebook Macatracks at gmail dot com. Macatracks at gmail dot com. This is from Josephine. She says, so glad to hear callers uh, pointing out the lack of internet access in and around Australia. City dwellers have no idea that their taken for granted internet is just not there for families away from the cities and big regional centres. All ABC broadcasts generously tell us we can listen anytime online. G'day, Macca. Listening to you, uh, says Tony, Tony Edwards. Uh, Listening to you in Adelaide on a newly restored 1972 Chrysler stereogram. Remember those, John? A Chrysler stereogram with a mob of magpies having breakfast by the front door. Perfect Sunday morning. Kieran, uh, Kieran Kelly's been on the road. He's been walking the John Muir Trail. He sent a text, not to me, but to uh, Margaret, Margaret Carney, and I'll read it to you. He's uh, walking this John Muir Trail, which is taking him about 30 days, and it goes up to 14,000 feet and along the Sierra Nevada. But anyway, listen to this. Well, I've had some adventures, but still in one piece. In three days' time, just past Sally Keys Lake, I will be halfway. It seems I've been on the John Muir Trail for ages, but it's only been 13 days. It's all starting to become a blur of sore shoulders, high passes, heat, cold nights and storms, views that go on forever, mosquitoes and great silences. I experienced my first Sierra Nevada autumn storm three days ago, and it was epic. 
I reached Lake Virginia around 2pm and decided to have a swim in a magnificent lake. I'd noticed some big clouds building up and as I arrived in the middle of the lake, as he swims out there, see, heard the firm... First ominous rumble. I beat a hasty retreat to shore and erected the tarp in double quick time and really banged those pegs in. Deep. I had no sooner finished than my first bits of hail started to batter my hat. I flew everything under the tarp and crawled into my sleeping bag. The temperature dropped alarmingly and I soon had to put my down jacket on as well as thermals. Over the next hour I was treated to a Sierra Classic. Lightning crashes into the granite ridges around the lake. Heavy hail, driving rain, furious wind and deep bass thunder. I've never tarp camped in a storm before and it took a battering. As I lay there I thought, this can't last. Either the seams will rip or the fabric will shred and I'll be left with no shelter. For the first time in my life I was frightened the lightning being particularly scary as it crashed into the mountains. What happened next, I don't know, as I fell asleep. I woke with the start at 6.30pm, see, because he tries to break camp, he tries to make camp, rather, in the afternoon, before the evening and maybe storms. I woke with the start at 6.30pm to a blessedly intact tarp, a zephyr of a breeze. Isn't that a nice word, zephyr? We were talking about that word last night when I read this. A zephyr of a breeze and sunset turning Lake Virginia golden. The following day I headed south. I saw the full impact of the storm and some of the people coming north. This is on this John Muir Trail, who had been at Silver Pass when it hit. Shredded tents, soaked gear, bruises from the hail and the terror of the lightning close by on the pass. Some of them were terribly shaken. I hurried on hoping to get over Silver Pass before early afternoon as clouds had been building up all morning. No luck, I reached Squaw Lake below the pass around noon and had stopped to fill my water bottle when the first piece of hail hit me in the back. I jumped into my storm gear and got going as rain started to pelt down. Luckily, no lightning, and I made it to the summit at 10,754 feet around 2.20pm to be confronted by a solid snowdrift blocking the path over the pass. These are one of the constants on the high passes of the John Muir Trail but are usually gone by this time of year. I'd climbed one at Donahue Pass, but without crampons. It's not something I wanted to repeat, so I rock-climbed around it, which seemed the safest option to me. View from the pass back the way I'd climbed was spectacular. There's a saying on the John Muir Trail, always look backwards, and I fully concur. I trudged on down the reverse slope and reached Silver Pass Lake, where I had intended to camp, but felt pretty good and kept going. Thus ended a... fairly typical day on the trail. I was particularly chuffed as the tarp and I had survived our first Sierra Nevada storm and I backed it up with an 18 kilometre day that included a 10,000 foot pass. The challenges from here will be the passes getting increasingly high, the increasing incidence of storms as we move into autumn, the importance of planning and campsite selection so you can summit the passes by early afternoon. The dangers of the snowpacks is not to be trifled with. A chap fell and died on Mount Mather, a snowpack, during the week. I met one of the blokes who saw it happen. He had to break open his pack and wrap him in a sleeping bag, then summon rescue. They have an interesting response here that rescue and emergencies take precedence over recovery. Guess that's life in the wilderness. I'm having a rest day uh, on Lake Edison, a popular spot where the southbound, like me, swap information with the northbound. I've got some excellent information on the big passes ahead while providing intelligence on the waterless stretches I encountered on the northern section. See, this is the John Muir Trail. It's like, I suppose, the Hans Heysen Trail and those other human hovel track and the Bibbulmun track here in Australia. But uh, the weather over there is a bit... uh, 
more problematic. Uh, that's about all the news, says Kieran. It's harder than I thought, but I'm steadily plodding south. It's lonelier too. As the deeper I get into the wilderness, the less people I encounter. I saw a bear the other day who just ambled away. It will be nice to have someone to chat to at the end of the day to swap experiences with, but most nights I'm in a solo campsite deep in the forest near a creek or a lake. At least it's not noisy with someone keeping me awake, but I'm starting to talk to myself, which is a worry, especially as it's usually gibberish. I'd give anything to hear an Australian accent. Bye for now. That's Kieran. How about that? How about that? Listen, our number this morning is 1300 700 I'd love to talk to you. Fires, people dealing with fires, houses destroyed. Um, just life in Australia, I suppose. As I said earlier, I don't know why we don't have Elvises everywhere. A couple in each state, including Tassie. Places where we always get fires. We always get fires in Tassie. We always get them in Victoria. We get them somewhere in New South Wales. We always get them in southern Queensland. We get them around Perth and southern uh, Western Australia. I mean, they happen in other places, but they're the main ones. They're routinely, we get fires there, don't we? A couple of Elvises or whatever you need. If they're the latest firefighting uh, planes, well, go with it. Talk to you. 1300 Good day, this is Macca. G'day, Naka. This is Terry. G'day, Terry. Yeah, you were talking to a reporter in Queensland before talking about the fires, and uh, you mentioned to him about drones and said that you weren't aware of the, you know, not being able to fly drones over fires. Mm. I'm with the uh, CFA in Victoria, and I'm a, an aircraft officer with the Air Services Unit, mm. and uh, I thought it was probably, because you have such a, a, a broad listener base, it might be worth reminding people that... Uh, it's a national law that uh, if you put a drone up over a fire, we've got to bring all the, the helicopters and the other aircraft down, mm. which uh, which means that we can't help put the fire out. And of course, we all know that ground crews put the fires out, but uh, they get a lot of help from the air. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's well worth remembering if you want to have a look at the fire and look at the TV because uh, there's always some you know some pictures that'll tell you what's going on if you need to know. But uh, don't put a drone up because uh, we'll have everything else on the ground. Yeah, exactly. Well, Terry, Terry's a cameraman, actually. Um, he was a cameraman travelling uh, around those fires up around uh, northern New South Wales and southern Queensland around Stanthorpe and uh, filming it, I think, for Channel... doing some freelance for Channel 10, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, and uh, I just thought, yeah. And he said, no, you're not allowed to use drones over a fire. So there you go. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people didn't know that, too. Yeah, there's a lot of people who don't know. We still do see it, and it's uh, it's just it's just tragic when uh, you've got to bring the the choppers down and uh, and wait and find out where the thing's coming from and let them know. But yeah. uh, the police aren't too happy when they do find them. I can tell you. No, yeah. and and it's the it's the latest thing, isn't it? Drones. Everybody's they want to buy them. You can buy them online, and everybody wants to have a drone. I'm not sure why, but anyway. Um, yeah, every second person's got one. I think. <laughs> well, I haven't, and I bet you haven't, a Terry either. No, I don't. I don't. definitely don't. So, Terry, on that other point I was talking about, uh, you know, Elvises, because I, I saw the Elvises in Port Melbourne years ago. I don't know. must have been 10 years ago or 15. Yep. They were on the I – think, I think they were leaving or just coming. I don't know. There was two of There was Elvis and another one. But do we have uh, some – I mean, I, I, I would have thought by now, it's a bit like when people talk about saving water in times of drought and we get flooding rains but we don't seem to save the water – Saving a bit of water would be a good idea, and and I would have thought some sort of firefighting aerial um, thing in every state um, would be just uh, you know 
de rigueur. Well, we should have it everywhere. Do we have it everywhere? Well, we do. We we have a we have a fleet of aircraft that come online every year. Now, of course, we speaking about having it all year round is a is a, a moot point. But um, with the fire seasons changing, and we know the climate is changing, the fire seasons are changing, um, and they're they're overlapping much more than they used to. This is mm. why we're seeing fires so early in the northern states. Um, That's the but, wind uh, too, isn't it? The wind. Oh yeah, definitely. That's part of the whole picture, definitely. Mm. But we we do have a fleet of aircraft that come online um, in each state as the fire season begins, and uh, the uh, the big Ericsons that you're talking about, the S64s, they they are um, travelling all over the world fighting fires, um, and so they'll, they'll ship them off to the next place. They'll work in Indonesia and they'll work in Europe, in Greece. They'll work mm. in the states, obviously. Um, we have a lot of pilots from all over the world who come in for our fire season. Um, on having something of our own, New South Wales, you probably know, has a, a very large air tanker um, that they've recently purchased, and that's what we call, well, we call it a LAT. We have an acronym for everything, a three-letter acronym for everything <laughs> in fire services. Of course. Uh, so the large air tankers, they're, they're very useful for uh, for some of the bigger fires because they can, they can drop a whole lot of uh, retardant or... Um, other substances on the fires, um, but we we don't have Ericsons of our own. No, you're quite right. Um, um, and Terry mentioned uh, this is the other Terry that I spoke to who's filming up there. He said there was a, a jumbo, a jumbo jet dropping retardant. So that'd be coming out of Brisbane or somewhere, would it? I suppose I don't know. Yes, most likely out of Brisbane. Yeah, uh, I'm not aware of a jumbo, but there you no, go. Well, <laughs> I've just learned well, something. <laughs> well, uh, well, he said was he might have got it wrong, but it's yeah, obviously a big, uh, big uh, thing. But he said it was a jumbo. Um, yeah, well, it'd be a big jet anyway. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Well, Terry, um, yeah, I just think it would be a good idea, you know, and you'd like to have your – because we do fires better than, than just about anyone around the world. I know they have fires everywhere, but we, we routinely get them in the, in the same places every year, don't we, really? Um, Victoria, That's for sure. Yeah. Victoria gets great ones and Tassie and uh, New South Wales and Queensland and over in Perth they get some rippers. And so, you know, I just think it would be a – yeah, and you know, if we weren't using them, you could lend them to whoever needed them at the time. You know, if we didn't have any fires, if it was raining in Australia, you know, you say, "Well, look, have a lend of our Elvis for a couple of months or whatever." But um, I just think it'd be a good idea. That's all, because you never, yep. you never know. As you say, with the climate, you never know when you you think, "Oh well, summer fire season," but you know, you only got to get a dry winter and some winds and whooshka away you go and. And, and Particularly then you... in the northern states too, Macca. Yeah. It all starts early in Queensland and then it works its way down. But uh, we've seen fires in southern New South Wales so early now, it's uh, it's quite disturbing that our, our seasons are overlapping so much now. Terry, how long have you been fighting fires? Uh, about 15 years. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it must give you a, uh, feelings of... Uh, Relief and also feelings of that you've done something good, and also horrible feelings when you look at fires because they're terrible things, aren't they? The the destruction I can, and I can tell you, it's all it's all very busy while it's happening, Maka. Yeah, I better just... you don't get time to think about a lot except the, the bit that's in front of you if you're on a truck. Uh, but uh, when again, when you're working with the aircraft, it's like it's like uh, juggling spinning plates and balancing on one foot all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Terry. Keep in touch, mate. Nice to talk. Cheers, mate. See ya. Uh, 1300 700 2 Good day. This is Macca. Hi. Good morning, Macca. Good morning. Hi. It's uh, Wayne uh, Wellerman calling from uh, Papua New Guinea in uh, Port Moresby. 
Hi, Wayne. What's happening, mate? Uh, not too bad. Uh, it's not a bad weather here in Moresby. It's been unusually a bit cooler. Um, only about 31 degrees. It's been 28 degrees all this week and quite cooler this evening, about 22, which is um, we're expecting normal weather. Normally, we sort of get a bit of influence from the weather um, coming from Australia, so it's been unusually cooler in Moresby. Well, that'd be nice. Uh, I- That'd be nice, I'd suspect, Wayne. So, Wayne, what do you do in uh, in Moresby? I work for the uh, Civil Aviation Authority in um, PNG uh-huh. and uh, been in the aviation industry for the last uh, twenty four years. And how's and, uh, how's that all go? Yeah, good. I'm really enjoying. It's a bit different from usually uh, the normal work I used to do, which is. Uh, working for airlines, and um, it's a good change. I enjoy the challenge, and, um, yeah, it's uh, exciting. Yeah, and and, that's, and it's the only way, really, to get around in uh, PNG, isn't it, uh, by by plane? Yeah, <laughs> you're right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it is, yeah, and um, we're such a quite a unique um, sort of geography in, in country. It's, um, it's not a place where you could easily... Uh, build roads or put um, train tracks and the easiest way and probably still the safest way is to um, buy air um, around the country. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine last week um, who'd just been over to um, uh, PNG. He, he was uh, going up the Fly River and he, he was flying because he's, he's a pilot in the small plane so he and his mates went over there and they flew around and I've always heard stories about flying in PNG and clouds and mountain hopping and all, all the sort of daring do stuff that people did in, in days gone by and it sounds pretty hairy and scary to me flying in PNG but there you go <laughs> Well it, it definitely it is, it's quite a challenging place um, to, to fly up here and um, and that's why it's our job to <clears throat> just keep it safe. And actually, last week I was um, listening in, and um, what caught my curiosity was your, your mate when he was up in uh, Mount Hagen visiting uh, Bob Bates and uh, where he was travelling. Um, so it's it's really good to hear uh, someone coming up and and just flying around, just enjoying um, just the the sort of unique sort of flying up here. Um, it, it's definitely. Uh, not as, uh, you know, like in Australia, you've really got to know what you're doing when you're uh, working up here and uh, really know what your procedures and what the rules are when you're flying up here to keep yourself safe mm. and everyone else. It was interesting, he's talking about, he um, was just across the border in Indonesia and walking up, I think, one of the top, uh, I think the only glacier. Yeah. The and um, I've got a friend who's um, worked with... Uh, uh, Carmen Zellin, and he's actually um, started walking at midnight tonight. Uh, he's walked up to uh, Mount William, which is the, the uh, tallest hill in mountain in Papua New Guinea. It's about 15,300 feet. Wow. So he's, he's uh, going with a group of friends. He's had to make sure he trained for about um, about a couple of months to get himself fit. And yeah, um, yeah he's, um, so he's up there now. So I thought that's Quite interesting, similar to um, your friend had called up last week, so I said I'd um, give you a call and and uh, tell you about it. <laughs> yeah, well, good on you. Uh, that's um, 
That's um, I've had we've had calls from time to time because a, a bloke who was working in Kalimantan and told me about that um, that glacier up there, uh, which is an equatorial yeah. equatorial glacier right on the equator. So, um, but uh, and Greg Mortimer, who I spoke to last week, said it's just about he said, right, Greg. Yes, okay. He yes. said there's a couple of ice cubes left, but it's not. It's not. There's not much of it left now. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, it's funny, last month there was someone that walked up to Mark Willem and um, they, they used to have, uh, you know, small little pots, pots of lakes up there, but it's um, no longer what it used to be. So we're um, what is changing and it's not what it used to be uh, anymore. So, Wayne, you uh, you lived in Port Moresby for, um, what, 14 years, did you say? Or you've been up there working for 14 years? I've, I've been up here for... Plus fourteen years, but mm. I've um, lived overseas, worked overseas before coming back to um, uh, PNG uh, to work. Yeah. And you you listen every Sunday, do you? I do almost. Uh, well, not not almost every Sunday, but um, if I can, and been doing it for the last uh, oh quite some years now. Oh, that's good. Twelve years, I think. <laughs> well, it's it's look, it's a it's a country that I've never been to, but I've. I've talked to many people, and I'm fascinated with the Fly River. It's a, sort of like our our nearest version of the Amazon. It's a it's a mighty river, isn't it? The Fly River, um, and I just love to see it. And I know um, Margaret Ollie, uh, one of our famous painters, who's passed away now, but uh, she used to go up there and and draw. And a lot of Australians have been to PNG, but that it's uh, I've never been there. Um, I always wanted to do a program up there uh, somewhere in. In PNG, but um, yeah, maybe one day, Wayne. Who knows? Yeah, there's a um, there's an operator, McDermott, um, a small operator based out of Cairns. Um, they do a run up there, up to towards the western province, which is where the Fly River is. Yeah. Um, and they fly up to a couple of places. They go to well, they hop across from Cairns to Long Island, and then to Adaru, and then they do a trip up to a place called Densback. Densback's quite um, famous for a lot of uh, barramundi fishing, and they've got a um, you know modest sort of uh, accommodation there. But if you're interested in a bit of that sort of adventure up in the Fly River, um, that's not a bad spot to um, go to. Uh, so McDermott Aviation do that. I could um, I can when I'm in the office, I can email you the address and you can have a chat with them and see what sort of services they um, they got up. Going up there, so they fly in a king air. All right, yeah. This is a um, small, yep. Uh, you know, high performance double prop that can probably sit up to about eight to six passengers, depending how much weight you're carrying. And um, so they go up there. And they uh, there was a, some work I did a couple of months ago with uh, Casa Australia. We did some REM checks um, in Cairns for uh, international operators, and one of the um, uh, operators that we checked was uh, McDermott Aviation. There you and, go. Um, yeah, Wayne, so, you've got a new prime minister too, haven't you? Yes, yes, and we're we're excited. Look, um, there's real optimism up in up in PNG with uh, James Marapé as the new prime minister, and we're excited. Um, it's it's definitely a big um, a challenge for him, and um, we're we're happy to all excited to take the journey with him. And, well, that's good. Uh, so. I think I think there's a similar feeling in Australia too. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Good we'll on you, Wayne. What happens? <laughs> Thanks, Maker. <laughs> nice to talk to you. Nice, nice to know you're listening there in Moresby, mate. Thank you. Thank you. See All you. Right. Bye. Thanks, Maker. Cheers. Have a good day.
John's in Pilton. Is that right, John? Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Macca. How are you? Yeah, good. Where's Pilton for the rest of us? On the Darling Downs, is it? That's correct, yeah. It's between Toowoomba and Warwick. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty dry here today. I'll bet. Like every day, windy. Um, getting a bit of smoke from the fires yesterday and mixed with a bit of dust. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the weather hasn't been great. But, um, the reason I called Macca, I was listening to the lady uh, talking about the penguins. Oh, right, and, yeah. Um, yeah, so I was sort of putting it in a, a bit of a, a different perspective as a farmer. I, you know, I think the the lady mentioned it was costing them about five hundred dollars a week to feed the penguins, and they're running out of money. And I'm thinking, well, as a farmer, you don't get any assistance, very, very little, and they come and make it very hard. And you know, at the moment, we're spending thousands of dollars a day feeding our cattle and talking about dogs. And I'm thinking, well, we have dogs come through daily, weekly. You know, we lost some sheep yesterday. Um, you know, fencing is expensive. So I actually wish the national parks and the conservation areas would fence the dogs in and keep them on their side of the fence because uh, <laughs> then we wouldn't have to be worrying about them on our side of the fence. Exactly, exactly, mm. Johnny. Um, I spoke to a um, a bloke driving hay the other day and uh, I said, um, how much was the hay on here? She said, oh, about $20,000 worth of hay. And so, and that... Yep. Probably last, uh, depending how many cattle you got, but you know, a lot of people don't have many left, but they've got their breeding stock and that lasts about a month for 20 grand a month. Well, that's if, a bit right. if you add that up, it's a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, how do you keep that going? But, um, and uh, yeah, and as I mentioned to Margaret a little while ago, the dairy farmers down on the Murray, they're doing it tough too, and they're paying water water rights for no water. They're not getting water, but they've still got to pay their rates. Um, now and then, Mackie, you, you, you see a bit of a light. The government will say, look, you know, we'll give you a 50 to 10 facility on, say, putting down some water, a new bore or something like that, which helps. But then you go and have a look at the the, the questions that they ask you to answer, and it would be, is your farm your primary income? Well, the farm's making zero, you know. So I, I actually live in Western Australia, and I've got the farm in Queensland, and I, I live over there. I was just there. I was four days in Queensland. I went back to WA for few days and I'm back here again so I'm flying back with the Fords but I've got to go there to earn the money to keep the farm running so really what the government give you is just uh, it sounds great but you know we've never seen a cent. <laughs> Johnny um yeah you've got uh, you've got you just got cattle that's all on the Darling Downs? Yeah it's just cattle and sheep and you do a little bit of cropping as well but you know that's not going to happen. That's it's not going to happen is it at the moment? No no it's not going to happen so you know we've it looks like it won't be a good year this year, and um, you know, if you believe everyone else, it probably looks like another, maybe possibly two years. We just hope that in the Darling Downs, you do get isolated storms. You've just got to be one of the lucky ones to be sitting under that cloud when it comes over. Yeah, and what what about your neighbours, John? What are what are you talking to them? Yeah, really bad. Yeah, really bad. No, no, no one. I, I, I can't say that I know anyone that says yeah they're having a great time. I mean. No one complains about it. They just get on with it. You know, the hay, the, the hay carters here are probably the busiest people I know of. They're making good money because uh, you know, they're, they're non-stop carting hay and feed getting scarce. And, uh, you know, I went to a uh, a friend's birthday party not long ago and I, I bought him a bottle of $400 rum that's a bit expensive. But he said, geez, that's expensive. And I said, well, not really. It's uh, less than four bales of hay. Johnny, um Keep in touch, mate. Um, I'm going to try and come up to the Darling Downs and put a dance on. Um, I might bring Mark Walton, who's in the studio this morning. We're going to do a progressive barn dance. So um, 
that'd yeah. be great. Yeah, well, it'd be better than what else is happening at the moment, it wouldn't. It? Um, take your mind right. off it. We'll we'll, uh, we'll uh, keep in touch, Johnny. But um, yeah, thanks for giving us a perspective on. Yeah, well, everybody needs money, don't they? For all whatever whatever the cause, they're not decrying any cause. But yes, farmers are doing it particularly tough. And if it does, trade everything for rain, Macca. Yeah, exactly. As <laughs> the bloke said, rain. and I said it last week, Macca. He says if we got two inches of rain, we'd marry one another out here. Oh, I'd love to see it. The kids would love to see it. I think the cows would love to see it. So, but look, Macca, thanks very much for your time. Good on you, Johnny. Thanks, mate. See you, mate. Bye. <laughs> Margaret and. Mark are presenting a little piece called From the Veranda at Pimble Ladies College next Saturday. It'll only go for an hour and a half or so, from 6 till 7.30. You can come along. A donation to uh, the Outreach Music Program would be nice. So if you'd leave a, a dollar or two at a few bob at the door, that'd be nice. But um, just come along and uh, enjoy Margaret's wonderful writing and uh, reading and Mark's wonderful music. Um, Mark was just saying before the news that uh, because Margaret's too... I don't know. What's the word? But she's uh, she won't tell you, but she's had a stroke, uh, a bad stroke. When was that, Margaret? How long uh, ago? August last year. August last year. And how long did it take? You're not over it, you, but, no, you, but no. you're a lot better. Oh, absolutely, Maggie. Yes, mm. I'm, I can function and I can, you know, I can manage my life now. But mm. it was, um, yeah, it was a bit of a wild what's ride that, to start What's with. that like? What's that like? I mean, um, I just, I think about those because, you know, as you... Uh, as you get older, yes. Things happen to your friends and well, look, to yourself, Mac- you know, you just... Well, Mac- I honestly thought it it wouldn't happen to me. I had, I had, like, I'd always had such good health, and I had a certain sort of arrogance, I suppose, hubris that the, these sort of things wouldn't happen to me. Because mm, you're bright and intelligent, and you think you bounce along. And, yes, and yeah. I, I, you know, I kept myself fit, and I didn't have high blood pressure, and like, you know, I didn't wasn't diabetic. All the risk factors I didn't have, so I had sort of, like I say, I was a bit smug about it all, really, mm. mate. So, and then when it happens. Um, you know, then you're dependent on other people and you need people to help care for you and just to do, you know, uh, the most basic stuff. And, like, you suddenly realise how vulnerable you are once you have any sort of disability. And um, It's terrible, isn't it? When yes. You, especially uh, when you're independent and you're, oh. you're doing stuff all the time, you're racing around. And, Maka, I had, um, like, one incident of just, you know, um, when I was still in the acute neurological ward and stuff and um, Queensland Health... Um, have um, decided in their great um, sort of wisdom that they would have mixed wards, right? Which, I, for a woman, I mean, I'm old school. I found it all a bit... You're, parts a, of, you're a woman? Actually. Yes. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I man. sort of, yeah. I, I, you know, the whole... There were, you know, anyway, fantastic care, but anyway, I found this whole mixed ward thing a problem. And because, um, you know, there's all sorts of things going on with your brain and whatever, and, you know, you'd often need help during the night to go to, you know, I couldn't walk, so to go to the bathroom and whatever. And you know you're disturbing people, and you don't want to, but there's nothing you can do because you just can't manage anything yourself. So I was, you know, I knew I was disturbing people, but the man next to me really took exception to it. And at one point after the nurse left, he started to abuse me and he said, you know, I'm going to come in there and punch you, you know, you're making a noise and, you know, like, and I was completely and absolutely terrified because, um, which I know, I mean, it's it's a sort of one of those stories, but for the first time in my life, I thought, I actually can't get away. And if he decides to, you know, anyway, it, it, it was they soon shifted me and all sorts of things and the man, you know. I was told not to do it again or whatever. But I suppose what I'm saying is that there's a vulnerability that you never, ever think will happen to you when you've been independent for, 
your entire life mm. and and that you're dependent on the care and love of others really and the kindness of others and i find even now like that like you say the kindness of strangers to me that's the thing that's most amazing because often you know i'll get an attack of the wobbles or i can't the poor jimmies yeah <laughs> I think that the, the poor Jimmy's is a psychological <laughs> state, Maka. Yes. Yeah, so, um, We've all been there, mate. Yeah, yeah go on. Anyway, um, and I'll have to just clutch at people or grab onto them or people can see I'm struggling or whatever. And it, it's just that the, there's the most wonderful people in the world and invariably, um, you know, I get help and um, just when, you know, you least expect it. So um, I think that when people say the world's a tough place, I think there's more good people than not. Well, I met these two people in, uh, I think it was Julia Creek, wasn't it, Kel? Have a listen to them. Come and meet them. I'm talking to Guy and... Deborah. Last name? Keats. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. And where do you live, Guy? On Bow Park, 100 k's north of here. North of Julia Creek? Yeah. I'll, I'll just consult that on my maps. <laughs> to make sure it's, it's fair income, yeah. We're, we're, we go across the, the Flinders and we live on the Saxby. How's things on your place? Yeah, yeah, pretty good. We're getting back to normal after the, the flood. We had a um, flood of sort of almost biblical portions. Yeah. Lost a fair few stock, but um, yeah, we're getting back to normal again. And I was actually stuck in Townsville with the kids uh-huh. when the flood was in Townsville, so I couldn't leave there and I couldn't get home. So it was um, pretty stressful. About three weeks, Deborah was away because she let, left to put the kids back to school. We've got four kids in boarding school, and so... Yeah, it was a bit hard to... Eventually, once my strip dried out, I was able to go and pick her up. So what's the upshot? How do you feel now about what's happened? Well, we lived through 1974, and after 1974, there was just a major change to the community because sheep left, and I thought in the middle of this that Julia Creek would disappear. But we've had just unbelievable support, and we're just so pleased and humbled by the support that we've had We'll keep Julia Creek going because of that. Yeah, it'll take a while to get back because some people will leave, but most people will hang in. It'll take about 10 years to to get back, I would think. But, yeah, it's it's been wonderful support we've had. When you ask people to help, usually, mostly, people just embrace it. They love to jump up and, oh, I can do that, oh, I can give you a hand. And, and I think that's what's happened with this and, and with other things like the fires that we've ha- we've seen, you know, and... In the last 10 or so years. Yeah, we've had unbelievable we've had overwhelming support. amount of help and support and just different groups sending money and vouchers and Blaze Aid, volunteer people coming out, spending their time doing mm. whatever. Yeah, it's been amazing. When Scott Morrison came up, that was amazing. We couldn't believe he was coming to town. Oh, he yeah, just blew he, everyone He'd given away. a lot of support uh, that, that I wasn't expecting, and it was real. It actually turned up. The, 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 the support actually did turn up, which we were pretty surprised at. Tell us about your country, where you live. Tell people, paint a picture. We are at the top of the true gulf, and the gulf is very flat. And so we've got sand ridges that run off the rivers. So we're, we've got frontage to the Saxby River. And outside that, it's Downs country. It's very flat and highly productive. It's phosphorus deficient, but cattle do well. It's good breeding country. In that wet, it just, it just went underwater and stayed underwater. The water moved very slowly, so we didn't have a lot of erosion except near the creeks. The, the water killed the ground, it killed the grass, and so we're still in drought, unfortunately, but we're, we're going along all right. 
hoping for rain again this year, <laughs> but not so much. <laughs> Is there crocodiles around near you, bordering on the Gulf? So do you get crocodiles around your way? Saltwater crocodiles do come up the rivers as far as us. I've never seen one. Sharks do come up as far as us. I haven't seen one, but we got lots of freshwater, and there's freshwater. We actually had a freshwater crocodile in what we call our swimming pool for many years, and it's just a dam near the house. And our eldest daughter used to be able to swim up to within probably about six feet of him and then we used to call him squishy and then he'd um <laughs> really? then he'd uh, he'd duck down he'd be happy to be on the end of the diving board with the kids sitting on the other end of the diving board <laughs> where, where, i was gonna yeah. say i was gonna come up to your place but i don't think i will now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when i was a kid going down the milking yard in the dark the crocodiles would come up from the river and spend the day in our pool which was a, a dam at the house and then um then they go out and hunt at night Oh, I see. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but they're fresh. You see, they won't, we used to swim with them. They, they only eat fish. They don't eat people. It's like my mate Kieran who swims with sharks and says it's wonderful. It's Guy and Deborah, is that right? Yeah. Good on you. Nice to meet you and good nice luck. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks. <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.